Hi, and welcome to Discover Circus, the podcast of the American Heart Association's journal, Circulation Research. I'm your host, Dr. Cindy St. Hilaire from the Vascular Medicine Institute at the University of Pittsburgh, and today I'm going to highlight articles from our September 30th and October 14th issues of Circulation Research. I'm also going to have a chat with Dr. Corey Levine and Dr. J.U. Lin from Washington University, St. Louis, and we're going to discuss their study, Transcriptional and Immune Landscape of Cardiac Sarcoidosis. But before I get to the interview, I'm going to highlight a few articles. The first article I'm going to share is Extracellular Vesicles Regulate Sympathoexcitation by NRF2 in Heart Failure. The first author of this study is Chang Hai Tian, and the corresponding author is Irving Zucker, and they are at University of Nebraska. After a myocardial infarction, increased oxidative stress in the heart can contribute to adverse cardiac remodeling and ultimately heart failure. NRF2 is a master activator of antioxidant genes, suggesting a protective role, but studies in rats have shown its expression to be suppressed after MI, likely due to upregulation of NRF2-targeting microRNAs. These microRNAs can also be packaged into vesicles and released from stressed heart cells, and now this group has shown that rats and humans with chronic heart failure have an abundance of these microRNA-containing EVs in their blood. In the rats with chronic heart failure, these extracellular vesicles were found to be taken up by neurons of the rostral ventral lateral medulla, RVLM, wherein the microRNAs suppressed NRF2 expression. The RVLM is a brain region that controls the sympathetic nervous system, and in the presence of EVs, it is ramped up by sympathetic excitation. Because such elevated sympathetic activity can induce the fight or flight response, including increased heart rate and blood pressure, this would likely worsen heart failure progression. The team, however, found that inhibiting microRNAs in the extracellular vesicles prevented NRF2 suppression in the RVLM and sympathetic activation, suggesting the pathway could be targeted therapeutically. The next article I wanna highlight is titled Impaired Dynamic Sarcoplasmic Reticulum Calcium Buffering in Autosomal Dominant CPVLT2. The first author of this study is Matthew Walensky, and the corresponding author is Bjorn Nolman, and they are at Vanderbilt University. Exercise or emotional stress can prompt the release of catecholamine hormones, which induce a fast heart rate, increased blood pressure, and other features of the fight or flight response. For people with catecholaminergic polymorphic ventricular tachycardia, or CPVT, Physical activity or stress can cause potentially lethal arrhythmias. Mutations of calcequestrin 2, or CASQ2, which is a sarcoplasmic reticulum calcium binding protein, is a major cause of CPVT and can be recessive or dominant in nature. For many recessive mutations, disease occurs due to loss of CASQ2 protein. This group investigated a dominant lysine to arginine mutation in this protein and found by contrast, protein levels remain normal. In mice carrying the mutation, not only was the level of CASQ2 comparable to that in control animals, but so too was the protein's subcellular localization. The mutation instead interfered with CASQ2's calcium binding or buffering capability within the sarcoplasmic reticulum. The result was that upon catecholamine injection or exercise, the unbound calcium released prematurely from the sarcoplasmic reticulum, triggering spontaneous cell contractions. 
in uncovering this novel molecular etiology of CPVT. The work provides a basis for studying the consequences of other dominant CASQ2 mutations. The next article I want to highlight is from our October 14th issue of Circulation Research, and the title of the article is ORAI1 Inhibitors as Potential Treatments for Pulmonary Arterial Hypertension. The first author is Bastian Mason, and the corresponding author is Fabrice Antigny, and they're from Enserm in France. In pulmonary arterial hypertension, the arteries of the lungs become progressively obstructed, making it harder for the heart to pump blood through them, ultimately leading to right ventricular hypertrophy and heart failure. A contributing factor in the molecular pathology of pulmonary arterial hypertension is abnormal calcium handling within the pulmonary artery smooth muscle cells. Indeed, excess calcium signaling causes these cells to proliferate, migrate, and become resistant to apoptotic death, thus leading to narrowing of the vessel. This group now identified the calcium channel, ORAI1, as a major culprit behind this excess signaling. Samples of lung tissue from pulmonary arterial hypertension patients and a pulmonary arterial hypertension rat model had significantly upregulated expression of this channel compared with controls. And in patient pulmonary arterial smooth muscle cells, the high ORAI1 levels resulted in heightened calcium influx, heightened proliferation, heightened migration, and reduced apoptosis. Inhibition of ORAI1 reversed these effects. Furthermore, in pulmonary hypertension model rats, ORAI1 inhibition reduced right ventricle systolic pressure and attenuated right ventricle hypertrophy when compared with untreated controls. This study indicates that ORAI1 inhibitors could be a new potential target for treating this incurable condition. The last article I want to share is titled Fecalibacterium prosnitsi attenuates CKD via butyrate renal GPR43 access. The first author of this study is Hong Bao Li, and the corresponding author is Tao Yang, and they are from the University of Toledo. Progressive renal inflammation and fibrosis accompanied by hypertension are hallmarks of chronic kidney disease which is an incurable condition affecting a significant chunk of the world's population. Studies indicate that chronic kidney disease is linked to gut dysbiosis, specifically depletion of lactobacillus, bifidobacterium, and fecalibacterium, prompting investigations into the use of probiotics. While supplements including lactobacillus and bifidobacterium have shown little effectiveness in chronic kidney disease, supplementations with F. prosnitsi have not been investigated. Now this group has shown in a mouse model of chronic kidney disease that oral administration of F. prosnitsi has beneficial effects on renal function, reducing renal fibrosis and inflammation. This bacterial supplementation also produced the short-chain fatty acid butyrate, which was found to be at unusually low levels in the blood samples from the CKD model mice and from chronic kidney disease patients. Oral supplementation with this bacterium boosted butyrate levels in the mice, and in fact, oral administration of butyrate itself mimicked the effects of the bacteria. These findings suggest that supplementation with F. prounitsi, or indeed butyrate, could be worth investigating as a treatment for chronic kidney disease.
today I have with me Dr. Corey Levine and Dr. J.U. Lin from Washington University, St. Louis. And we're gonna talk about their paper, Transcriptional and Immune Landscape of Cardiac Sarcoidosis. And this is in our September 30th issue of Circulation Research. So welcome and thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you for inviting us. It's a great honor to be here today. Thank you. Um, really great paper, a ton of data. And so hopefully we can pick some of it apart. But before we get into it, I actually wanna just talk about sarcoidosis generally. So I know it's, you know, a systemic inflammatory disease that has this, you know, kind of aggregation of immune cells as its culprit. And it can happen in a bunch of different organs. I think it's mostly in the lung, but it's also like you're studying in the heart. So can you just give us a little bit of background? What is sarcoidosis and how common is cardiac sarcoidosis? Well, this is actually a great question, and I'll try to answer it. You know, you actually capture like one of the most important kind of features for sarcoidosis. It happens in all kinds of organ systems, mostly commonly in lung, in lymph nodes, but also in heart, spleen, even in brain or even orbit like eyes. So it's really a truly multi-systemic disease that has been characterized by this aggregate of macrophages or myeloid cells with scattered multinuclear giant cells. As the name implies, you have like multiple nuclei, big chunky cells that forming an aggregate. And then that's kind of like a pathognomonic features for sarcoid, regardless whether it's happening in the lung, in the heart, or in any organ system. A lot of studies has been done, but as of now, a very clear pathogenesis or a mechanism has been, I would say, still pretty elusive or still remain quite unclear, you know, despite all the great effort has been made in this field. And the other thing is that a lot of the studies actually focusing on pulmonary sarcoidosis for good reasons. Actually, that's one of the most common manifestations. And for cardiac sarcoidosis, although it's only affect in probably, I would say, 20, depends on the data, 20 to 30% of the a patient that with sarcoidosis, with or without lung involvement, it's actually carry a very significant clinical implications as the matter that the presentation of cardiac sarcoidosis can be devastating and sometimes actually fatal. So in some of the study, actually show that cardiac sarcoidosis is actually higher up to like 80%. It's just because the first presentation is actually, unfortunately, sudden cardiac death. And that's why, you know, Corey and I, we team up like I'm a cardiothoracic pathologist. So, you know, in my clinical practice, I see specimens and samples from human body for from patients suffer from sarcoidosis, both in lung, mediastinal lymph node, and heart. And Corey is outstanding heart failure and heart transplant cardiologist to see the other end, which is the patient care. And so this disease, and specifically in heart, its presentation and its pathogenesis in heart really attracts our attention. So do we know any or some of the potential causes, like why it would start maybe in a different patient population, but also in the heart versus the lung? Do we know anything about that process? So we know nothing about it. Sarcoid has no known etiology. There's been thoughts in the past that it may be driven by infection, atypical pathogens or autoimmune etiologies, but really there's little data out there to support those possibilities. And so right now the field's wide open. The other challenge is we don't really have a good way to treat this disease. And so a lot of the therapies available are things like steroids, which can have some effect on the disease, but carry a lot of risk of complications. And the other agents that we sometimes use to lower the doses of steroids, things like methotrexate and azathioprine are only modestly effective. So 
these really are, you know, the motivation for JU and myself to pursue this. We don't really know, know what causes the disease and we don't really have very good treatments. And so we really wanted to take the first step and that's to study the real disease and understand what are the pathologic cell types that are present within the granuloma, which is these aggregation of immune cells that JU was speaking about. What is actually happening, I guess, at the beginning of this disease? So these granulomas form, and then what is the pathological progression in the heart? What goes on there? So this is actually another great question that I will say, there's not that much that has been discovered because especially in human tissue, Every time we have a sample, it's actually a kind of like a time point. You know, we cannot do a longitudinal studies. But in general speaking, very little is known about how it's initiated because it will need to accumulate to certain disease burden for this to be have a clinical symptom sign and being manifested and then being clinically studied. We do know that in both heart and lung, after treatment of progressions, it's usually in a general speaking going through a phase from a more proliferative means that, you know, it's creating more granuloma, more this kind of inflammatory cell aggregate to a more fibrotic phase means that sometimes you will actually see the granuloma start to disappear or dissipate and then showing this kind of like dense collagen fibrosis. And that has been commonly documented in both lung and heart sarcoidosis. And the other thing is that very difficult to study this disease that we do not have a great animal model. So we cannot use animal model to try to approximate or really study the disease pathogenesis. There are several animal models they try to use like mycobacterium in, or infectious agents. And these infectious agents can create morphologically similar granuloma per se, but just like in human body, like for instance, you know, patients suffer from TB in their lung biopsy will show this kind of granuloma. But clinically, these are two very distinct disease entities, even though they look alike. Yeah. And even in the heart, one of the you know, conditions that we study in our paper is giant cell myocarditis. As the name implies, you have the multinuclear giant cells, it form granuloma. It looks really alike you know, under microscopy you know, for pathologists like me, but their clinical course in the response to treatment is drastically different. So this type of barriers and then the current limitations of our study tool makes, as you know, Corey just say, this is really a wide open. We just know so little, despite all the effort. Yeah, so I'm guessing based on this, you know, granuloma information to start with, the obvious question you went after is going after the immune cell populations that possibly contribute to sarcoidosis. And so to do this, because you have the human tissue, you went for single cell transcriptional profiling, which is a great use of the technology. But what biological sources did you use? And how did you go about choosing patient, right? Because the great thing about single cell is you can do just that, right? You can look at however many thousands of cells in one patient. But how do you make sure or check that that is, I guess, kind of broadly seen versus just a co-founding observation in that patient? Yeah, so we use explanted hearts and heart tissue from patients that underwent either heart transplantation or implantation of LVADs. And so it's a pretty, pretty big hunk of myocardium. And we're lucky to work with outstanding pathologists, both at WashU and JU, as well as our collaborators at Duke. And between the two institutions, we're able to pull together a collection of tissues where we knew there were granulomas within that piece of tissue we analyzed. Because you bring up an important challenge. You need to make sure the disease 
and cause of the disease is present in the tissue that you're analyzing. Otherwise, you'll not you know, come up with the data that, that really is informative. And also, you know, Corey beautifully answered the question, but I just want to add one little thing. And that's also why we use like various different modalities. Some of them is like more like kind of like in situ, like the nanostream technology of spatial transcriptomic. You can visualize and confirm that we are studying the phenomenon that has been described for sarcoidosis. So, and then using multi-channel immunofluorescence to validate our single nucleus sequencing data to complement such limitations of certain technology. Especially I feel like with this human tissue, disease tissue, that it's such a large tissue, there's so much information, it's really hard to dig in and figure out where the signal is, you know? This was a wonderful paper for kind of highlighting, integrating all these new technologies with also just classical staining. Makes for great pictures as well. <laughs> so, so how does the cellular landscape of cardiac sarcoidosis compare to a normal heart? What'd you find? This is a great question. You know, compared to normal hearts, we focus on this. We have been talking about this like accumulations of macrophages with scattered multinucleotide cells. But for the cellular landscape, first and foremost, you do not see those type of accumulations, you know, by bright microscopy or by DCT, the myeloid, hand myeloid markers in the heart. Although indeed in even normal heart tissue, we have resident macrophages. It just doesn't form such morphological alterations. But then we dive deep into it, and then we found that, you know, from a different cell type perspective, we realized that the granuloma is composed by several different types of inflammatory cells, with most of the T cell and NKT cells kind of at the periphery, and then the myeloid cells, including the multinucleotide cells, also CD6A positive, are kind of in the center of the granuloma, of the sarcoidosis. Then we further dive in and then realize that there are at least six different subtypes of myeloid cells that is contributing to the formation of this very eye-catching, distinctive granuloma formations. And to just name a few, you know, first of, and foremost, of course, is those multinuclear giant cells that is really distinct, even on the line microscopy or, you know, routine HNA scan. And then we have a typical monocyte that's kind of more like a precursor being, you know, recently recruited to the heart. And we find this at the, the other four different types of uh, myeloid cells that carry different markers, and then including the resident macrophages. And then uh, the, I think one of the really exciting data, especially for me as a pathologist, I'm using my eye and looking at stand every day, is actually these six types of cells, myeloid cells, actually form a very beautiful special kind of distribution with the connections or special arrangement with all different types, like kind of like multinuclear giant cell in the middle, flanked by HADR positive epithelial macrophages, SYTO3 kind of like scattered, and then with dendritic cells and a typical monocycle at the peripheral, and then resident macrophage kind of like in the mix of the seeds of granulomalan inflammation. And all these are distinct from a normal heart tissues that does carry a certain amount of macrophages, but just don't form this kind of orchestrated architecture distinct structures that yeah. compose of this very complicated landscape. And those images, I think it was figure six, it's just gorgeous to look at and the model you made. So one of the questions I was thinking is, is there a, I mean, there must be a significance between these cells that are on the periphery and those that are in the center of this granuloma. Do you have an idea or can we speculate as to are some more cause and some more consequence of the granuloma? 
were you able to kind of capture any more information about maybe the initiating steps of these from your study? That's a great question and a question the field has had for a long time. So now we know there's different populations of cells and the single cell data allows us to understand what are the transcriptional differences and distinctions between them to gain some insights. So one thing that we do know from the field is that disease activity correlates with mTOR activity within these granulomas. And so we took advantage of phospho-S6 kinase staining as a downstream marker of mTOR activity, and Ki67 as a marker of cell proliferation. And um, asked which of these populations within the granuloma might be most active with respect to mTOR and respect to proliferation. And I think if you ask most people in the field, they would jump up and say, it's the giant cell in the middle. And we found that that's not actually the case at all. It's the macrophages that surround the giant cell, the ones that are HLA-DR positive, the epithelial macrophages, and the ones that are SYLT3 positive that are scattered around them. And that's really interesting and could make a lot of sense and leads to hypothesis that perhaps activation mTOR signaling within certain parts of the granuloma might be sufficient to set up the rest of the architecture. And that's something that we can explore in animal models and are doing so to try to create a cause and effect relationship. Yeah, and I was actually thinking about this too in relation to, I guess, kind of the resident macrophages versus infiltrating macrophages or, or even just infiltrating immune cells. Do you know the original source of the cells that make up the granuloma? Is it mostly resident immune or, or are they recruited in? So we can make predictions from the single cell data. We can use trajectory analysis to make strong predictions about what the origin of different populations might be. And so what those analyses predicted is that the giant cells and the cells that surround the giant cells, the HLA-DR positive and SYLT3 positive macrophages come from monocytes. That's the prediction. And of course, resident macrophages do not. However, that prediction has to be tested. And that's the beauty and importance of developing animal models. And the wonderful thing today is we now have genetic tools to do that. We can ask that question. So what kind of mouse model, I don't know, maybe you don't want to spoil the lead of the next paper, but what kind of mouse model are, are you thinking about trying? Yeah. So first of all, let me talk about the tools that are available because they're published in circulation research, of course. So we have a nice tool to specifically mark, track, and delete in tissue resident macrophages using a CX3CR1 ERT Cree mouse and taking advantage of the concept that tissue macrophages don't turn over from monocytes and turn over from themselves. So we can give tamoxifen to label all monocytes macrophages and DCs with that Cree, and then wait a period of time where only the resident macrophages remain labeled. And we can use that trick to modulate mTOR signaling as a first step and ask whether mTOR signaling is required in that population. And we've now developed a new genetic tool to do the same thing in just recruited macrophages. So what was the most challenging aspect of this study? I mean, there's a lot of moving parts. I mean, I'm sure probably the data analysis alone is challenging, but what would you say is the most challenging? I think you alluded to this early on, but the most challenging thing is collecting the right tissues to analyze. And that's not a small feat or, or a small effort here. All the technologies are a lot of fun and everything works so well today compared to many years ago when we trained. So it's an exciting time to do science. And so I think it really, you know, the most challenging and time-consuming component was assembling a group of tissues that we could do single cell sequencing on between our group and our colleagues at Duke, and then creating validation cohorts that we did across several different institutions, including our own as well as Stanford. So that team effort and building that team 
is the most important, challenging, and honestly enjoyable part of this. I cannot agree more what Corey just said. And I think that that's the challenging, the fun part. And that we're very fortunate to really have a simple, a great team to tackle these questions in multiple fronts and from multiple institutes. I just want to add one more thing, that particularly for me as a cardiopathologist, one of the hardest things that is actually with, I've known how to look or diagnose sarcoidosis for years, but seeing the data emerging that is so complicated and then beyond my reliable eyes in HNE standing, it's kind of mentally very challenging, but very fun, like to like really open and broaden the vision. Like it's not just how it looks like just giant cells in macrophages. So what do you think about in terms of diagnostics or even potential therapies, how do you think this data that you have now can be leveraged towards those objectives, whether it's, you know, screening for new cell types that are that are really key to this granuloma formation versus therapeutically targeting them? This study opens new doors. And so right now, diagnosis of sarcoid is limited by trying to biopsy, which is in the heart, is limited by sample bias. So you certainly can biopsy the wrong area because you don't know whether a granuloma is in the area or not. And then we do do some cardiac MRIs and other imaging studies like FDG PET scans, which are helpful but are not perfect. And each of them has their individual limitations. One of the beauties of our study is it identifies new markers of macrophage populations that live within the granuloma, many of which are unique to this disease. And so that suggests that there's maybe an opportunity to develop imaging probes, uh, imaging tracers that can identify those populations that more specifically than our current PET imaging studies do, which relies simply on glucose uptake. It also opens up the possibility that we may be able to take blood samples and identify some of these cell types within the blood and have more simple testing for our patients. And I think in terms of therapy, you alluded to it earlier, this concept about mTOR signaling, that could be a, a new therapeutic avenue that needs to be rigorously explored in preclinical models. And we're lucky already to have very good mTOR inhibitors available in clinical practice today. So obviously, you know, opening new doors is amazing because it's more information, but often a good study leads to even more questions to be asked, right? So what question or, or maybe what questions are you guys going to go after next? Well, that list is very long. And then that's actually the exciting things about, you know, doing this research. There's no bad questions in some sense, you know, all the way from diagnosis, management, monitoring, therapeutic, how we predict where the patient can respond. That's the whole clinical side. And even the basic science side, you know, we still haven't really answered the question Although our data suggests that where that multinuclear giant cells coming from, that's still like, it's very eye-catching. Like, how do they form, even though our data suggests it's from the recruited macrophages? But that's still a long way from the, you know, recruited macrophage or a tumor monocyte to that gigantic bag of nuclei in the, you know, very fluffy cytoplasm. And then how the granuloma, as we kind of like, you know, discussed earlier in this discussion, is like really initiated from like a relatively normal background myocardium to form this disease process. There are just like so many questions that we can ask. There are, of course, several fronts that we would like to focus on and kind of like Corey already nicely elucidated some of them. You know, first and foremost is actually to establish animal model to enable us to do more details in mechanistic studies because 
you know, human tissue, as good as it is, it's kind of like a snapshot, just one time point, and it really limit our ability to test our hypothesis. So animal models certainly uh, is one of the major directions that we are going forward. But also the other side, like more clinical science, also to develop novel, non-invasive methodologies to diagnose and to hopefully monitor this patient population in a better way. Well, it's beautiful work. I was actually reading this paper this weekend at a brunch place just next door to my house. And the guy sitting next to me happened to see over my shoulder the title and, you know, said that his father had passed away from it. So, you know, this is hopefully going to help lots of people in the future and really help to make the models that we need to ask what's happening in this disease. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and congratulations on what seems to be a landmark study in understanding what's going on in this disease. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. That's it for our highlights from the September 30th and October 14th issues of Circulation Research. Thank you so much for listening. Please check out the CIRC-RES Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at CIRC-RES and hashtag DiscoverCIRC-RES. And thank you so much to our guests, Drs. Corey Levine and Drs. J.U. Lin from Washington University, St. Louis. This podcast is produced by Ashara Ratnayaka, edited by Melissa Stoner, and supported by the editorial team of Circulation Research. Some of the copy text for highlighted articles was provided by Ruth Williams. I'm your host, Dr. Cindy St. Hilaire, and this is Discover CIRC-RES, your on-the-go source for the most exciting discoveries in basic cardiovascular research. This program is copyright of the American Heart Association 2022. The opinions expressed by speakers in this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of the editors of the American Heart Association. For more information, please visit ahajournals.org.